Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with Michael Botnick, Director of Research at Ritholtz Wealth Management, and Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree Investments. Ritholtz and Wisdom Tree have partnered on a new crypto index that financial advisors can utilize in client portfolios and investment allocations. We talk to the two about this new initiative, how the index is constructed, as well as some of the underlying holdings in the index. Investing in cryptocurrencies for most financial advisors is in its infancy, but developments like the Ritholtz Wealth Management Wisdom Tree Crypto Index are important as investors continue to learn about cryptocurrencies and as the space matures. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Michael Botnick and Jeremy Schwartz. Hey guys, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Today we have Michael Botnick of Ritholtz Wealth Management. You may recognize Michael from his blog, theirrelevantinvestor.com, or his podcast, Animal Spirit, or from the compound on YouTube, which I highly recommend. We also have Jeremy Schwartz with us for the second time around. Jeremy is Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree and the host of Behind the Markets podcast, which I also highly recommend. Today, we're going to talk about a new collaboration that these uh, guys have together. Their two firms are working together on a crypto indexing product, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the index itself, how investors can get exposure to the index, and a bunch of other things. So this is our first uh, dedicated podcast to crypto. And the reason for that is because Jack uh, is still upset about the Ethereum I gifted him in late 2016, and he panic sold uh, early on, and he's basically left six times his money on the table. Right, Jack? <laughs> yeah, you know what? I've never bought any crypto. I got this gifted crypto. Basically, everybody else is running around with their Lambos. They made all their money in crypto. And I basically panicked, sold it at $600, $600 which is what, like 80% below where we are right now. So uh, I, I'm basically the opposite of what you should do in the crypto space. It happens to the best of us. There's too much value investing with you guys. You guys have to uh, get some new value gurus, uh, some crypto gurus. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully we've got them on with us today. We are trying. So we, we want to start with you on if you guys could just share maybe your personal experiences in investing with crypto, because everybody kind of comes at this and gets exposure to this from, you know, a slightly different angle, something influenced them, maybe they want to learn about it. So they just started allocate, allocating smart, uh, small amounts of money to it. But for, for you both, how did you first sort of start getting involved personally with investing in crypto? I mean, I, I remember the first meeting, uh, and I wish I would have first, when I first learned about it, I probably had a meeting with Barry. Silbert, who founded Grayscale, wanting to do an ETF on Bitcoin. I'm like, what is this Bitcoin? It, it probably was in like the hundred, the, the small hundreds of dollars. And and I we didn't do anything. It was too hard to actually get an ETF off it at the time. It's still hard to get ETF off it at the time. But that was my first learning about it. And then, um, you know, frankly, my brother got into it before I did. He was telling me about it. Um, and then, you know, at, at work, our company started investing our CEO. We had the strategy committee that tries to think very big picture trends in the industry. He had asked the question to our committee saying, what could do to ETFs, what the ETFs did to mutual funds? That was a very big picture question. He set us down the path of exploring. And we started this initiative to really focus on the blockchain as the key disruptive technology that could be like the quote unquote killer app for ETFs that there's elements of bringing things to the blockchain that could reduce transaction costs, frictions, preserve the benefits of ETFs that ETFs did to mutual funds. Uh, so there's a long, it's a long tail investment, but we're doing a lot in that spirit. We've announced some new things called Wisdom Tree Prime that it is going to be our own wallet, tokenizing all sorts of assets. But we set down that path a number of years ago. Through that path, I got to meet Tyrone Ross. He uh, helped me get my first Bitcoin through a firm I was associated with at the time called Eaglebrook. So I have some accounts at Eaglebrook today from that original. That was my first investment in Bitcoin uh, a number of years ago. And then from there, have obviously expanded beyond Bitcoin to things like Ether and, and other things through some individual companies. Uh, and, and, and ultimately, this index that we worked on with Michael is the type of thing that I think is the the type of solution needed to get broad diversified exposure. And we can talk about, about that as well. Um, all right. So I, I, I don't remember when I first learned about Bitcoin, but I, I don't know. When did it start popping up? 2012, 2013, I guess. 
And I read the white paper, didn't understand it, meant absolutely nothing to me. Uh, I've used this a lot, but this is how I felt about crypto for a long time is John, not John, uh, John Oliver's explanation or his description. It's everything I don't understand about computers mixed with everything I don't understand about money. That was, that was Bitcoin for me or crypto for me. I guess it was just Bitcoin at the time. And so I was one of those dummies that was dunk on it because I didn't understand it. I read Mark Andreessen's piece in the New York Times and I was like, interesting, but whatever. Um, didn't take it seriously. And I think one of the reasons why is because I guess back in 2014, 15, there really was no use case, right? Like at least I didn't see a use case. And it, a lot of the people that were talking about it were just Bitcoin promoters, like just Bitcoin fixes everything. And I just, I didn't see the vision. I was never explained simply to me. Um, and so it just never clicked, unfortunately. Uh, and I guess it was around 2000, like in, in 2000, I don't know, 18, 19, whatever. I said, all right, if this falls 90%, I'll buy some. So if it, I, basically I was, I was looking to get in at $2,000. That's when I would have, would have bought some. And then 2020 happened and there was obviously distractions, other things on my mind, but it got pretty close. I think it got down to like 3000 and I can't remember why I first bought it. I guess it was like in, I don't know, June, July, 2020. I think it was like, to, I think it was a, an emotional hedge um, such that if the laser eyes guys were right, I didn't want to spontaneously uh, combust and just jump out a window if Bitcoin ever went to 100,000 and I didn't own any. So it was just like for self-preservation. Um, and then from there, I guess I, I, you know, was learning about Ethereum because to me, they were one and the same, right? Like a crypto is a crypto if you don't really know any better. And then I found Top Shot and NFTs and DeFi. And like most other people, once you start learning about it, you start to learn more about it. And it's really hard. Like I, I'm totally empathetic to the fact that most people think it's a scam or tulips or whatever. Like I totally get it because if you don't see the use case and all you see are like the maniacs yelling about it, that Bitcoin fixes everything, how could you not think it's a scam, right? Um, and so I have spent a lot of time educating myself and I'm much more into the technological aspects. Not that I'm a, not that I'm a, uh, techno person. Like I don't speak computer language, but the future of financial, the, the rails of the financial future, like has me much more excited than there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, uh, inflation replacing the dollar like that. To me, that all sort of falls on deaf ears. I get it. It's just not my thing. So I'm much more excited on what this is going to become. And I think that from an investor's point of view, it's really, truly one of the few asset classes out there today that can exponentially increase over the next five to 10 years. Will it, you know, we'll see, but I think you're starting, that's why you're starting to see a lot more macro people get interested in it because the risk profiles of, of this asset class are unique. So that's interesting. So you kind of had Jeremy, you were kind of coming from the top down wisdom tree this is like an area we're going to focus on. Michael was more like bottoms up, got exposure to it, was learning about it through maybe buying some of the NFTs, dabbling in some crypto. So how did your two firms actually decide that, okay, let's collaborate, let's work on this index. Let's try to bring this index to financial advisors for their clients. Yeah. So, um, one thing that I forgot to mention just along with like the, the journey of discovery, like I remember I read a post from, or an article, I don't know what we're calling an essay, whatever it was, it was a PDF, a big fat PDF from Bitwise and the CFA Institute. And it was probably 60 pages long, but there was a lot of like plain English. And I was like, I wish I read this 10 years ago. Like finally English, I understand what this is doing. And so they've been, they've been great. Some of the stuff that they've put out. And I think it's a shame that we don't really have like more of that. And it exists obviously, but I guess the point is what most people see that aren't interested in spending time. And I'm not suggesting anybody go down the rabbit hole, but there's like actual things going on besides for just price go up, which by the way, price don't go up. Price seems to only go down. But, uh, in terms of like getting together with Jeremy, so, uh, me and a few of my partners, uh, invested a little bit of money into on-ramp. I can't remember when, I don't know, whatever, a year ago, a year and a half ago, whatever it was. And we're, we're not interested. We were not interested in the original use case of being able to see held away assets, like being able to see what our clients own outside away from us and bringing it into their financial plan was cool, but like not a huge use case from my point of view. Um, because it's not like we have a lot of clients that just so happen to have $3 million in Bitcoin. 
where it's in a you know where it's an essential part of their financial plan and their 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 assets where we have to report on it. But what I started to get more and more interested in was a better way to deliver a crypto crypto exposure to our clients. Not that anybody was really banging down our door and saying get me in. Um but my feeling is that let's just say 0% of advisors are allocated to crypto today. I think it's going to be a lot higher than 0 in 5 years. And I wanted to have a solution for clients that do want exposure to it, right? Um, other than just like go open a Coinbase account and good luck. And so we started to think about what would a portfolio of crypto assets look like? And what I the way that I was describing it was a modified market cap weighted portfolio. Because if you build a market cap weighted portfolio, you've got a bunch of meme coins, you've got some sketchy coins, you've got stable coins, and it's not, you know, so you have to make some decisions. Um, and so I called up Jeremy one day and I was just like, Hey, what are you guys doing with, with on-ramp? Cause I, I see that like they're doing model portfolios and I just wanted to learn more. And so Jeremy said, well, why don't you go first? What are you thinking? And I told him what we wanted to do. And he said, we're like doing the exact same thing. Why don't we work on that together? Would you be interested in doing that together? And from our point of view, it was a no brainer because wisdom tree and Jeremy could speak to this has a whole team of digital asset experts. They're already managing uh, 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 products in Europe. And so being able to outsource a lot of the construction of the portfolio to LEM was beyond a no-brainer. So Jeremy, why don't you, why don't you take it? Yep. Yeah, so I mentioned how I first bought Bitcoin through Tyrone. Tyrone went to be at, at OnRamp CEO and and we, A, became interested in what they were doing. It, it, and it's been very hard to access crypto in the US. In Europe, you can do basket products and we have both from three or four years ago, direct exposure to Bitcoin and Ether, but now baskets of, and it's basically per exchange what you can launch. Um, so we had been building a crypto indexing capabilities internally, and it was just a matter of time before you could actually execute that. I mean, what's amazing is Coinbase still can't execute a basket product today. Um, amazingly, like they're largest for individuals, but they can't do a basket product. So we would like the, uh, the main custodians to do more. Gemini is certainly. Uh, the most integrated on-ramp was the first gateway to Gemini. Uh, I think Gemini is building other gateways. Uh, they made their own acquisition uh, as well uh, of a firm called Betria. So you're going to see more access ways to do these crypto baskets. Um, and uh, so certainly we wanted to deliver that. E ETF, again, is far away, even for spot Bitcoin is far away, yet alone something that is diversified across the, the ecosystem. And, uh, and as our jointly interested parties in on-ramp, uh, I think it became a nice collaboration and, and, uh, to, to work with Michael and, and his team has been fantastic so far. Yeah, that's great. We're, we're going to, uh, sort of peel back the onion on the actual construction of the index, um, in a second here, but Michael, I just wanted to follow up on something you said, and, uh, you had mentioned, you know, there is not a lot of really great, well, what, what other, uh, places can people go? to learn about, um, cryptocurrencies. I mean, what other sources you, you mentioned bitwise, but is there other sites that you would recommend, um, Jeremy as well for you? Is there, is there places you guys go at that, you know, the, the, somebody new to crypto investing, um, can start to learn about this space? Yes. Yeah. So I, I should say that like, it's not that there's not education out there available. It's just that what rises to the top tends to be the promoters, which is unfortunate, but that's, you know, the same thing with any space. So I actually wrote a post, which you guys can link to if you want. And I called it, we built a crypto index. And at the end of that post, I linked to some of the things that were helpful to me along the way. So for example, I listened to, it wasn't like anything that clicked. It was, you know, it was a progression. These things, you know, it, it took a while, it built on itself, but I listened to Patrick O'Shaughnessy had a podcast called hash power in 2017. And at that time, I remember, I think Ari Paul was on there and, and I can't remember who else, but it was, it was all, it was another language. I didn't understand it, but I was interested in getting exposed to it. Um, I read Mario Gabriel. He has a blog post, a, a blog called the generalist. He wrote a piece on sushi swap that explained to me how, uh, the automated market makers work. Chris Dixon is great. He puts out a lot of stuff. Like I said, Matt Hogan and the team wrote about. The power of the blockchain, they called it self-driving banks. That really clicked with me. This guy, Eric Peters, uh, writes a lot of stuff about it. Bill Miller's helped me. Uh, so it's just, it's a lot of different people that have, and Packy has written a million things. So 
there are good resources out there, out there. I think you just got to find them. And, and so we have a strategies page also called the, the, the wisdom tree on our main website. Um, even though again, in the U S you can't have any ETS, we have something called the evolution of crypto, um, as a strategy dropdown, uh, and so this global team of people with European support, U S support is producing some regular commentary that can help as we think about it through, um, the, the, the fact sheet for this index is linked there, but, but as well as just general content to support it. And, and so we're also trying to be a, a useful resource along those lines. But a few of the podcasts I listen to, um, so Frank Shaparo from the scoop is, is one that Michael and I were on also very interesting as well as the Castle Island ventures teams or Nick Carter and his, his group has a great podcast also for two other podcasts that have some regularly very good content every week. Yeah, I guess I would say there's, there's not like one thing that you're going to read or listen to where you're like, oh, I get it. It would be like, if somebody asked you, Hey, how do I learn about stocks? Right. There's not like a definitive guide where it's like, oh, read this and you will understand. Right. Like I'm sure like you guys, it took me like years and years and years to really fill in the gaps because whatever you're learning about, whether it's history or economics or whatever, like there's blind spots and you just, if you want to learn, you have to put in the time. And I'm not suggesting that anybody like put in the time, but if you're interested and you want to learn there, there's no shortcuts, but there are places to start. Michael, you alluded earlier to the, to this idea that um, one of the criticisms of crypto right now is that the value that's accrued in the space has gotten probably pretty far ahead of the real world use cases so far. And since you guys have been inside crypto, I'm wondering if you could talk about maybe some of the cool use cases for crypto that either are here or are coming in the future that you've seen that maybe people like me who are value investors don't really know about yet. Sure. Uh, so two things that I think are like low hanging fruit that most people can understand. Why does uh, Ticketmaster or StubHub take, is it 25%? Why do they take that thing? Whatever it is, it's beyond egregious. And I had tickets to a matinee game at the garden, uh, a couple months ago, they were playing, the Knicks were playing the Nuggets. I don't know why I couldn't, it should be a good game. So my tickets were, uh, I don't know, call it $200 a seat for that game. And I tried to sell it because I couldn't go and I forgot to list them until the morning of, and I listed them at like, you know, at half off, but there was a floor. I couldn't list them below say $95. Why? Because StubHub is the gatekeeper and Ticketman, And that, that was their policy. They wouldn't let me list it for less than that price because with their take, I guess listing below, just whatever, they just wouldn't accommodate it. I don't understand why that has to exist. Why those middlemen are not disrupted. And I think that they will inevitably be disrupted. Another potential application is, um, something that I've railed on for a long time is title insurance. I think one of the things that you're potentially paying for is county records. People have to go search, track it down, blah, blah, blah. Why is that not on the blockchain? Why does, why do I have to pay $1,500 to prove that I have ownership? Shouldn't that just be like verifiable? digitally. Um, I was, I'm having, did I tell you, did I tell a story already? Forgive me if I did. No, I don't think I did. I said, I said this on a podcast I did earlier this morning. Um, we're working with, uh, we're working with a, uh, computer science guy. I guess he's like a computer engineer and was used to building on whatever rails that they build on. And I asked him, so he's doing something for us on the blockchain. And I asked him, how has it been? And this is not a crypto guy. You know, I, I asked him, how has it been? And he said, it's magical. He said, what used to take me five, what, five years ago, it would have taken me like weeks or months. I'm able to do in a couple of hours. So obviously I can't speak to that, but the technological improvements that are going to be, that are going to happen on the blockchain are, I know it sounds like kind of boomerish, but, and cliche, but that's, that's some of the things that have me excited. And then. I guess maybe Jeremy, why don't you talk about some of the exciting things that are going on in DeFi? Well, and, and sort of the practical, I mean, make it today, today, the, the news of, of Russia and Ukraine. I mean, this is like the standard first case for Bitcoin is, you know, you hear the word censorship resistant all the time. Well, what if you're going to be, what you, you don't think you have a problem today is U.S. investors, you money in your bank accounts here in the U.S., you don't worry about it not being able to access this and being worthless. But it, half the world's population, this was one of the things Ari Paula said on a lot of podcasts, in, including mine, 
saying like over half the world's population has a use case just to be able to take their money with them in a go around the world and to not have their their assets collapse right and so if you're a russian and you didn't you you can't take your rubles anywhere um and so that is a real use case you say store of value people would joke that bitcoin is so volatile is it really a store of value okay well now that you have all these stable coins in the crypto world again that you can take with you as you need them that is the the first central use case for crypto um and i do think you're seeing that on a day-to-day -day basis today um and now that's part of the DeFi world it's sort of disrupting banks it's disrupting exchanges so you hear you see these decentralized exchanges is one of the the DeFi protocols is you don't need to be trading the new york stock exchange or the nasdaq on their artificial hours from 9 a.m to 3 4 p.m you could be trading 24 hours a day seven days a week uh and so they're the, even paying a dividend payment on your stock which takes us, we have a company, public stock takes us weeks to pay the dividend. It's costly to pay a dividend. It could be done in 30 seconds with the click of a button through the blockchain. Um, so I think there is elements of reducing costs, reducing friction. It's going to disrupt a lot of tradition, traditional uh, infrastructure plays is some of our. Oh, how about, here's a real world use case. How about the fact that I'm getting, uh, and this is not like, in, you know, advice, obviously everyone has their own level of risk tolerance, but I'm getting 8% of my cash. Right. And, and people might think it's a scam. How does that, well, how about you listen? How about you actually listen to an expert? Not, not me. Listen to an expert, explain where it's coming from. It's not a scam. It's not a house of cards, uh, but that's a direct use case. I am not, instead of getting uh, 10 basis points ripped away by 8% inflation, I'm getting 8% nominal. So I'm getting zero returns. Thanks to Bitcoin. How about that? I'm getting 0% real returns. That's exciting. Yeah, that's the thing that always like shocks value guys like me. You know, we're kind of, we're kind of trained to say, you know, when when I'm getting an eight percent yield, there's something horribly wrong going on with the company. Um, you know, I should never be investing in it. I mean, you, you can get eight percent yields in crypto, and it's it's at least fairly safe. I use GUSD, which again, this is not advice, but that's Gemini stablecoin. They loan it out to counterparties who loan it out to counterparties, and the problem is there's just not enough cash in the system. So there is a constant demand for stable coins for leverage on the way in and on the way out, they get liquidated and they go back to stable coins because there's no fiat in the system. So it is, and then there's all sorts of regulatory and cross exchange arbitrages that obviously are uh, beyond me, but this is not, in my opinion, I think the risk, well, whatever, I don't want to say what the risk is because who knows what the risk is, but I am, I am comfortable with the level of risk that I'm taking for that, for that yield. I wouldn't say that if you're saving for a house down payment, put all the money there. But for money that is, you know, risk plus or cash plus, like obviously there's a, there's a degree of risk, more than a little degree of risk if you're getting 8%. This, yeah, the staking is one of the new ways to earn a lot of income off of many of the different cryptos. Um, so you can do it with stable coins, you can do it with, with many of the assets that you would include uh, in these indexes. And they range, you know, 5, 10%. Some of them are, are much more, um, but it's the type of things that you can see uh, as another way to earn income sort of sort of like securities lending as your traditional sec lending and you think about etfs they've been able to collect some of the securities lending but we're talking like 10 20 basis points on traditional equity securities because there's so much supply of those but in these markets there isn't as much supply and it's a classic demand supply thing so because there's not enough supply there's very high returns on the lending protocols that you can do i can't believe it's value guys you guys aren't buying sushi swap here yeah, we should be. So if you think about that sort of, that's mostly, that's, that's mostly a joke. It's mostly a joke, but it's not, and not, I'm, I'm only 90% kidding because with a lot of these automated market makers and decentralized exchanges, you could, you could see their, their revenue and their income, and you could compare that to their market cap. And so that, that is, I don't know if it's like completely analogous to buying CME or whatever, but the, a lot of these protocols have a tremendous amount of underlying cash flow, like a tremendous amount. Yeah, maybe instead of being in our energy names right now, we, that's that's what we should be with instead. That's a good pair trade. Yeah, exactly. I want to get into the construction of the index a little bit. Um, you know, coming from the equity world, it's pretty simple to develop a universe for an index. You know, we, we set some market cap requirements, we set some liquidity requirements, and we're pretty much ready to go. It seems like it'd be a little more complicated here. Can you talk about how you thought about the process of deciding like what would be the eligibility rules for the index? And, and listen, I think, we, we borrowed a lot from what you learned, best practice of indexing. And so one of the things, you know, you think about in the history of equity indexing 
there's even a difference in traditional beta indexes between the S&P and the Russell. The Russell is 100% rules-based by the 3,000 largest stocks. It's the Russell 3,000. The S&P 500 has a committee of the 500 leading stocks in the market. And it, it's a, it's, everybody knows it's a beta representation of the, of the U.S. markets, but it's the 500 leading stocks in the market. Obviously, you don't know exactly how they're going to add or sell, but you know they're trying to get the profitable stocks in, in the S&P. And we're trying to apply that same framework of having some risk oversight to what gets added to this index, but using a committee structure to get the leading crypto economies. Uh, now we represent two thirds of the crypto market. Um, for these indexes, you have to have a custodian. So I mentioned Coinbase is not one of the custodians who could do a basket product today. So we are working with Gemini as a primary custodian today. So number one requirement is it has to be listed on Gemini. Gemini itself has its own criteria and risk features to get added to. So there's already a level of, of diligence and risk oversight of getting added to Gemini and that they've done, they passed their first set of screens to make it available. But then we're going to have our further set of screens. I um, mean, obviously we're going to have Bitcoin and Ether as big positions and you know, they were roughly a little bit less than 60%, uh, sort of two to one ratio, a little bit more um, Ether in, in that perspective of two to one. But we then had 11 coins at 4% weight at the very initial construction. Things have now floated around. And we were just uh, on a crypto committee call this morning, Michael and I, and you've seen Luna, who, who started at 4%, got up to 10% because it's it's massively outperformed everything else. Uh, and Luna is one of the sort of base layer one protocols that have been used for stable coins. We talked about the surge in demand of stable coins, and Luna has really benefited from that. Um, you know, we've tried to get a broad representation of the different types of crypto assets. We could talk through each of the ones that we've added, but the main idea is try to be broad, try to be broad beta, try to get overall exposure, uh, and, and, and then add new things as they become available, uh, on Gemini. And we have some real time examples of looking at that, uh, today. Yeah. So to Jeremy's point earlier, we had a, we had a meeting and his team is phenomenal to be able to see, um, the traction in terms of revenue, user growth. Uh, number of transactions, whatever it is, uh, is fantastic. Looking at sort of constructing the index in more detail, you, you established six themes that were going to sort of be the, the basis you were going to, you were going to build the index on. And, you know, to be honest, looking at this, you know, for someone like me, who knows about Ethereum and Bitcoin, I don't even know what some of these things are. So I was wondering if we could maybe step through these six things individually, and you could just maybe tell listeners sort of what they are. Um, the first one is the layer one network. Yeah. So these are all the main protocols that you're operating on. So these are the ones you're the most familiar with. So Bitcoin and Ether are layer one protocols. Um, the other ones we have in there, I mentioned Luna, which had, which was the, the, that stable coin enabler. So it's the protocols that all that, that, that you're operating on. Um, uh, the other ones in there are Phantom. We're missing, we're missing two big ones, right? We're missing two big ones because they're not on, they're not on Gemini's pl uh, platform yet. So Solana and, and Avalanche were two big ones. Solana is just got added to Gemini. It's one of those that we're actively discussing at the committee now that it was just added to Gemini uh, very recently. And so with layer two, would the idea there just be it's something built on top of layer one? Exactly. In some ways, um, you know, the one layer two we have in there today is Polygon and Matic. It's, it's, you could say it's a side chain because it's actually got its own chain, but the, the whole point is how do you enable across chains and, or, or how do you actually make more, it's, it's more scaling and, and, and sort of, you know, one of the comments is Bitcoin can only handle a certain amount of transactions. And so you had this lightning network that was built on top of Bitcoin. You have all these things and, and, and Polygon and Matic there are, are trying to enable the sort of faster scaling of solutions on top of that traditional layer one. And it's built on top of Ethereum is, is where it is today. Hey guys, just before, uh, Jack, before you jump onto the next topic, I saw a tweet uh, a couple of weeks ago from Peter Johnson, merchants paying Visa and MasterCard. Wow. I was about to, could this be right? Yeah, it is right. Um, $60 billion a year in interchange and fees are getting hiked. This gets decimated as merchants realize stable coins offer near zero fees and no chargebacks. So this to me is some of the low hanging fruit. Uh, in terms of what can get disrupted. I have no idea how this plays out or what it looks like or how long it takes, but $60 billion a year in interchange fees paid by merchants, just a Visa and MasterCard. There are so many, 
Um, who's the guy from A66? Alex something. He was on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast. He has a video explaining like the five different parties involved in credit card transactions. And there's just so much uh, fat in there that needs to get cut. Yeah, and that actually, uh, that actually builds into the next thing I wanted to ask, which is the third thing in your, on your list. Wait, you guys, aren't, you, guys aren't long, you guys aren't long visa, are you? Uh, no, not that I'm aware of. We're quants, so we don't even know what we're long. Um, you know, clients sometimes ask us, what do you hold? We can't even answer the question. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, picking up on the idea of DeFi, I mean, it, if, if I look at DeFi sort of as things that would replace a bank and a brokerage firm and a credit card, I mean, is that a fair way to look at it? Certainly. So you have a number of the, um, DeFi that is our biggest allocation outside of the layer one. So we have Uniswap and SushiSwap. Those are these decentralized exchanges. So it is competing with the NYC and NASDAQ as that for crypto. Um, you have what Michael was talking about in terms of the lending there, there are firms that are doing borrowing and lending. So like the banks of crypto, um, and, and so there's liquidity providers like Aave, which is one of our coins. You have urine finance, which is another finance lending protocol. Um, in terms of the up and coming ones, we're looking at curve, which is one where the total value locked. And this is sort of like how many people are, are putting their crypto that they can earn sort of putting it for long-term capital. So you could earn rewards on that. Um, curve is one of the, the upcoming ones that we're, we're evaluating. Um, but yeah, this is, is, this is sort of the new rails of finance for borrowing, lending, trading that is traditional DeFi. So total value locked represents how many people are in on the scam, right, Jeremy? <laughs> how many people are trying to earn returns of their capital? When I, uh, when I saw the next one, I thought Larry Ellison was involved in this thing or something, but, uh, cause I have no idea what this is, but, uh, what is Oracle? So, you know, what, what is a smart contract? Um, you know, Ethereum's is an example of smart contract. They're, they're not quote unquote smart. They're just computer code. Um, and so what you have to do, if you're trying to bring the real world to these smart contracts, you've got to have data. And so these Oracle networks, um, is, is really about trying to bring real world data to the smart contracts. And it's, it's a key part of what you heard Michael talking about lending and yield farming and asset management and all sorts of things, um, these Oracle networks, this is actually one where sort of the old tech meets new tech. Uh, I, you just heard Eric Schmidt join the Chainlink Labs board to advise them on how to make sort of Google-like stuff come to the blockchain. Um, and so this is where you see the new, the old tech is trying to embrace the new tech and, and Eric Schmidt joining that board is, I think, a very interesting example of that. So Jeremy, with, with, uh, Chain, like for example, would this be a way to potentially get grab somebody's credit score and bring it onto the blockchain? Exactly. It's all sorts of things. They talk about weather, they talk about pricing, anything that's trying to bridge the real world. I mean, the key for the smart contracts, you got to have data and you got to have reliable data. Um, and that's why I think why a Google C founder would be, would be interested in it. But uh, yeah, any data bringing it to the blockchain is what Chainlink's about. And, and by the way, the credit scores are probably going away as well. Eventually I was listening to a podcast with somebody the other day. There's a big company out there that's doing this, you know, using machine learning and stuff. I mean, credit scores are probably gonna be a thing in the past and the future as well. Hope so. The fifth, the fifth one people are familiar with, but they probably aren't familiar with how you invest in it. And that's the metaverse. Can you talk about that a little bit? So yeah, every, certainly this got a run up after Facebook became meta. Um, and you had, you know, Decentraland, which is one of these virtual worlds. You could think about living in the virtual worlds. Our kids are going to be spending a lot of time in the virtual worlds. Um, and you know, people are starting to, to buy land in these metaverses and Decentraland is one of those places that are selling property and, and plots of virtual, virtual land. Um, the NFT world is another one where. A lot of this is, is NFT oriented. That's one of the things I, that you saw got Michael interested in other places, people buying a lot of NFTs, uh, in the marketplace that one of the marketplaces you could do a lot of that with is called the engine coin uh, or engine and, and the engine coin is one way to monetize that. Uh, and so we are, we have those two assets in, as our part of our metaverse allocation, we'll continue to look at other places. We're probably overweight the metaverse, which is, you know, constraining us from maybe adding a lot more at the moment, um, but it is, it, you know, we are trying to benefit from that tr general trend to the metaverse. So here, here's another area that unfortunately distracts people from learning about what's going on. Like I mentioned earlier, like the, the, a lot of the laser eyed promoters that say Bitcoin fixes everything. When you see some of the shit that's going on, like real estate, digital real estate in the metaverse, I understand people's reaction and, and it's mine too, 
to be like, oh, get the, you know what, out of here. This is all nonsense, right? So I'm sympathetic to that reaction. The idea that we're going to be going to virtual malls where Adidas and Nike are going to be advertising to us uh, might sound far-fetched. And, and, uh, and maybe it is, but I think people tend to like throw everything out when they come across something that doesn't make sense. Like a lot of the over people, you know, the overpriced uh, NFTs, for example, is another one. Although Jamie Dimon's JP Morgan bought a ad advertising space in the metaverse, um, and you are seeing a number of companies buy, it's really just advertising, right? It's a just new form of where they want eyeballs. If eyeballs are there, a lot of these companies are going to spend money on it. Yeah. The, the metaverse is something that's always surprised me how big it is and how many people, you know, how many people are in it already. Um, you know, when, when I listen to, like you referenced Patrick's podcast before, he's had some great people on talking about the metaverse. It, it's, it's pretty amazing what's going on there. Um, just to, just to touch on the last one, um, you know, people are probably familiar with the idea of indexing from equity investing, but I have a feeling it's a little bit of a different thing here. So can you talk about the, the last theme indexing? Yep. The graph. Um, and so the indexing services, this is more like uh, Google for crypto and, and you've actually heard Vitalik from the founder of Ethereum is talk about how the graph is going to be one of the things as there's so much history on Ethereum. It's is how to, you know, it could slow down the processing of Ethereum given all the history uh, and the graph technology is going to allow much easier search of, of past data on that. So just think of it as the, the Google for the blockchain is the way to think about it. And, and the more data that gets onto the blockchain, the more you're going to need a powerful search engine for it. Uh, and so that's the, the general case for that. We're going to be talking with the graph founder on behind the markets next week, actually. So that'll be an interesting one. If people want follow-up information, uh, that'll be a very interesting deep dive with, with her. You talked about this a little, a little bit about this earlier, but I'm wondering once you identified the themes, how did you decide which assets went under each theme? Were you just trying to get the leaders inside of each theme? Generally speaking, yes. I'm right. We're trying to be broad representation of the crypto economy. And so we do have two thirds to 70% of the total assets. And so again, the, the primary is you got to be listed on Gemini. Once you went on Gemini, you're trying to say, well, are there some new up and coming assets that you think you could get overweight exposure to? We were overweight defined the metaverse and some of the practical applications compared to their just total market cap. Um, but it is, you know, we, we had start off as equal weighting across these 11 altcoins you'd say besides Bitcoin and Ether, but you could see natural gravitation, Luna uh, more than doubled and some have fallen uh, and we're not going to be quote unquote buying the dip on all these losers. We're going to let the market sort of vote and the winners win and, and the losers, we're not going to just continue to, to plow into them. You know, we're just going to let that drift around. Um, but you know, if you think, if you see something that dramatically increases well mo more than its market cap weighted representation. Uh, that is something that you could think about trimming if, if, if needed, you think it's, it's gone up way more than, than you otherwise would have put if, cause you put a 4% starting weight in it. And um, that's the kind of conversation we're having, you know, right now actively. And, and do you have any quantitative rules? So in other words, if, if Bitcoin became like 70% of the index, would there be a quantitative rule triggered or would that be the committee would decide what to do? It is a committee, but I'd say, you know, we are in, in spirit, you know, between Bitcoin and ETH, the two main assets, like we have talked about, if ETH ever flipped Bitcoin, you're not going to, you know, force an artificial lowering of Ether below Bitcoin. I, I think it's, it's a harder question on things that you have, at, you started at a 4% position that you're materially overweight already, just because you're having 10 coins represent hundreds of coins. So you're overweight, a smaller asset, let's say that doubles or triples in size then you're further, further overweighted. And the question is, do you want to be that much overweight, a, a smaller asset? So that's the real harder question. Um, but I, I think we'll look to keep those, you know, risks balanced based on, on, on all the market di dynamics. And how often do you think about rebalancing it? So do you, do you rebalance it sort of on demand when the committee decides, or do you have a regular schedule where you do it? We're having monthly committee meetings, but, uh, as I mentioned, the triggers of new assets coming on Gemini could trigger something, you know, out of a monthly cycle. Um, and so as that is going to be one of the triggers is as new assets come available, we have a, a short list of coins that we want to get added. And as they become available, those, those become easier committee decisions to, to look at them and, and try to add them for the diversification properties and, and total market representation. But we're not going to be rebalancing because. Uh, we're going to let the market do that for us. If ETH flips Bitcoin, we're going to, that's going to be reflected in the portfolio. Imagine like the S&P 500 rebalancing, uh, for the last 20 years, <laughs> selling Amazon and adding to general electric, right? Like we're just, we're not going to do that. We're going to let the market go where it goes. Well, you know, we're value guys. So we did do that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, but, and how do you think about the, you alluded to this a little bit before with us, uh, Solana, 
when new assets come on the scene, you'll sort of put them before the committee and, and you'll decide whether they deserve a place in the portfolio? Yeah, so we did that today. We did that today actually with Solana. We were looking at some of the metrics behind it, comparing it to the other layer ones. And we're saying, all right, we're already uh, either overweight or underweight layer one. So maybe we just want to take from layer one as opposed to grabbing an overweight area. So those are done at the committee level. So there's no like quantitative rules. Um, so it's a committee decision. So what, just to help me understand, walk me through, um, I'm an advisor. I have an account at, I have my clients at Fidelity or Schwab. I decide to use on-ramp and allocate some of our, the client's money to this. How does this actually work? Does the money have to come out of Fidelity, let's say, and over to on-ramp? And then does on-ramp somehow interface with Fidelity or just from, from that process? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because this, this from, from the advisor point of view, this was crucial that we get this process right that every I is dotted and T is crossed because this is a new and potentially scary uh, asset class for investors. And so we wanted to make the process as seamless as humanly possible from opening the account to funding the account to trading the account. So we had our operations team work hand in hand, getting sure that this process was, was uh, on par to, to show to other advisors and their clients. All right, so the deal is this. You go to OnRamp and open an account, and it is super easy. First name, last name, phone number, email, maybe one or two other things. An email goes to the, uh, to the client, or the advisor, account gets opened. Then the way that we get money onto the platform is via wire. And so a minor pain in the butt, but hardly insurmountable, right? We send wires all the time. So we send the wire uh, to Gemini. OnRamp sits on top of Gemini, so they all talk to each other. It's... There's not like, it's not like we're talking to Gemini calling on ramp. It's one thing it's on ramp on top of Gemini. So we send the wire and then we're ready to trade. And the trading processes couldn't be easier. Like literally drop down our tree buy, and that's it. So we were, we worked very hard to make it so that people not only didn't have to jump through hoops so that it was like as, as seamless as possible. I think that's key because I think that in this day and age, like people expect that level of technology and seamlessness, or if it's not like that, they're just not going to be, it's not going to be worth their time to do it. The example I always give is say whatever you want about Robinhood. The design is super silky. It's so easy to use. It's so easy to get an account set up. It takes freaking, it takes two seconds, right? So it's not like a giant shock that the, that the app was successful. It's a pleasure to use. I mean, one of the things that I think some investors still have concerns over is sort of the security of cryptocurrency and whether the money can get hacked or stolen. I mean, you still hear these stories, although I would imagine places like Gemini and Coinbase, I mean, the amount of money they've raised and probably spent on cybersecurity is huge. So, I mean, I, Michael, you may have even talked about this on that webinar I listened to, how far they've come from a sort of cybersecurity standpoint on the custody side. I think if they get hacked and they don't, if they get hacked and they don't make their customer whole, they're going to zero, right? So that's not a particular concern given the size of the company and their ability to, to bridge the gap. God forbid something happens. Uh, Jeremy didn't, um, there was a, there was a, a hack at wormhole that jump capital, I believe plugged that $300 million hole or, or made investors full in like two seconds. Um, so I'm not particularly that worried about that. I mean, the thing you could. There's different ways you could have your own private keys and put it on like your own USB device to try to store your private keys. I mean, that's certainly one way to do it. You could also then lose your private keys, lose your passcodes, and that's one of the risks. And Or you could go to an exchange like a Gemini and they, you're sort of outsourcing your, your protection to them. I mean, we have done institutional level due diligence on, on, on firms like Coinbase and Gemini and, and are working today in the ETF provider with Coinbase as one of our, our custodians for ETFs. So we have gotten comfortable on their security protocols and, and feel very similarly about Gemini working on with them on, on various diligence packages as well. So we evaluate and due diligence on the custodians we work with, just like any other, uh, custodian like state street or BNY that we work with on traditional equities. Here's what I was going to say. I, I remember we are not promoting this to our clients where my advisor force is out there calling all of their clients to pitch them on this. This is not in our model portfolios. We're not recommending this for every client. 
This is for people who ask, hey, I want to learn more about crypto. Hey, what do you think about crypto? I want to get exposure. This is, that's what this is for. So I would say, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to guess, mm, I don't even want to throw out a number of what percent of our clients have this, uh, but it, it's certainly less than half. And I expect that to probably grow in the future, but that's how we're positioning this. It is, you know, depending on somebody's risk tolerance, I don't know, mid signal digits, right? We want to, if, if, if it, if it works and it, grows uh as we hope it will we want there to be like enough exposure that it's you know meaningful if, if we're right but also we have to balance the fact that like this is going to fall 30 percent in a weekend right and that's just a completely different risk profile that most investors have to grow comfortable with yeah so you're talking something like a five you know initially for somebody with a you know long-term time horizon high risk tolerance somebody like me maybe a 45 year old you know five five to seven percent initial position in the index something like that yeah i think that feels feels about right I wanted to ask, um, taxable accounts or taxable and IRAs? I actually just spoke to the team at OnRamp um, before I jumped on this call, and we are working, or they are working on retirement accounts. Right now, that's not an option. Um, and we're keeping the turnover low, uh, which is a good thing. I mean, ostensibly, at some point, these accounts will get liquidated, whether, you know, for whatever reason. So we would like to have some sort of solution for qualifying accounts as well. Yep. Yeah. That'll be good for people with retirement accounts, IRAs. One, uh, sort of one last question before we get to our standard closing question for both you guys, but how much, um, knowledge and maybe Michael, this is to, to both you guys, uh, how much knowledge do you think an advisor really needs to have in order to allocate, um, their clients capital, um, to crypto? Cause this is obviously you know, as we've talked about, we've really just touched on the surface here, which I think some of those references that you made earlier are going to be great for people to investigate and learn about crypto investing. But, you know, if you're an, an advisor out there and you're interested in crypto, like how deep do you need to go? Do you guys think to really feel, and I, this is an advisor by advisor, so everyone's going to be different, but I'm just wondering how much knowledge you guys think advisors really need to have to allocate to an index like this, where you guys are actually doing the work and selecting the assets and doing the weightings and stuff like that. So I'll speak for myself. I, I can't, I cannot go deep. I don't have the ability to go beyond the basics. And I think that's fine. I think when client, when clients want you to invest their portfolio on their behalf, um, they trust you to make basic decisions. And so for example, if you want us large cap exposure and you invest the Russell three, uh, the Russell 1000, they're not asking you to drill down on the energy sector, right? Like they want U.S. stock exposure and they trust you to give it, to deliver it to them in a way that's responsible, that's going to broadly track the U.S. large cap investable universe. And I think that's what we're trying to do with crypto. So I don't think that any advisor needs to feel um, uh, like a, that have imposter syndrome where like, listen, if you're going to recommend it uh, and you're going to like pound the table in it, then you, you better know what you're talking about. But advisors that want to be able to give this to the clients that ask, who ask about it, I don't think you need to worry about becoming an expert. And I think with a lot of things that start like this, it's like, why did I first buy my own first crypto allocation? It's like, we were going to start looking at it for Europe. We were starting to look at it, how to transform our business. There's nothing like doing it yourself to understand before you do it for your clients. And like, you care a lot more once you have your own money on the, on the line, there, there's always that that point. Um, and so I, I, I started making my own personal investments because I wanted to start studying and caring about it a lot more. And that there's nothing like doing it yourself. So I, I think people should think about it. How does it fit into their own? I mean, I started like at 1% and, um, that was essentially what, what I started looking at between a basket of some of the individual companies and the, the assets. And then, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's had a nice problem of it become a bigger percentage and, uh, it, I've sort of let it grow. I haven't felt like a need to completely lower my allocations. I just sort of let it run generally with some, a few of the trimmings. But I think in general, I like that there's a now a diversified index option and you don't have to speculate on a lot of the individual things and get tempted to trade around a lot of things. You could get broad diversified exposure without having to speculate on a lot of the individual things moving around. And I totally agree with that. I think if you want to, if you're interested in it, doing it yourself is the best way to learn about it. Like Michael, I think even you and Ben may have been talking about the, um, those DeFi indexes, um, 
And I, I was listening to your podcast. And as a result of that, I said, okay, let me just, you know, allocate a little bit into these so I can sort of learn what what is in these, how to buy them, because you can't buy them on Coinbase. You actually have to buy them on Coinbase wallet, which is a completely separate thing. So anyway, so, you know, I, I definitely think learning by doing is always sort of a really good way to get your arms around something new. Um, <clears throat> just a standard closing question here. You guys can, I want, I'd like for both of you to answer it and just the quick remaining time we have based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Oh man, I wish I was prepared for this. One piece of wisdom. Oof. All right. I, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is there is no universal playbook for investing. If there was, everyone would be following the same thing. So there's no one or 10 right ways to invest. And there's probably a lot of wrong ways to invest. Um, but there's also a lot of, a lot of uh, reasonable ways to invest. And the most important thing, in my opinion, is getting to the place where you're comfortable doing what works for you. Even if that's, you know, something that would be subpar in a spreadsheet, 40% cash, 60% equities, whatever it is, whatever you have to do to get to the place that you can stick to the strategy through thick and thin. And when I say stick to the strategy, the strategy doesn't have to be buy and hold, but it, you have to have some sort of philosophy that governs you, right? And if, cause if you don't have that, then you're just, then you're just flopping like a fish out of water. So I, I, some people get there quicker than others. Some people never get there, but I think that would be the most important thing is just to find whatever jives with your personality is the most important thing. I guess if I'd add to that, um, I mean, I, I, I grew up under the, the great Warren professor and we're actually in the process of, up, of doing the sixth edition of Stocks for long run, which I'll be joining as uh, as co-author this time. And, uh, so I, I think if I have one word to wisdom, it stops for long run. Now the question is on, on other things, and, and that's a lot of diversified stocks for long run. So buying index funds, buying broadly diversified baskets, um, things like this, where, where I think this crypto conversation comes in is I view it as, as one of those, you know, you have a core allocation called 80, 90% of your assets in a core long-term strategy, but you might have five, 10% in things that you think have these bigger growth opportunities, it gives you to have the, have, have, have more trying to quote unquote, beat your core allocation or, or things that you're you, more speculative, you might say, or things you enjoy trying to, to find or have that separated account from your core allocations, I think is, is something to be thinking about as well. Jeremy, are you writing a book coins for the long run? Not yet, but that sounds like the next one. I wonder if you can get Professor Siegel to write that one with you. Hey, we do have a chapter on Bitcoin and uh, and sort of new form of money in this in this version. So there will be a segment on, on Bitcoin, how he thinks about it versus gold and other things. Good stuff, guys. This has been great. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We'll put links to all those uh, references in the show notes. And um, I think this came out really good. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you. Hey, guys, this is Justin. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant, and you can follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carbonell. If you found this discussion interesting, please like us on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.